This podcast features explicit language and spoilers. back will thank you good to be back so tell me will how did the latest episodes of hannibal make you feel they made me feel good bad hungry disgusted insane completely with it uh sad happy laughing crying and i think uh drooling all over myself all of these feelings are perfectly natural. Not necessarily in that order. Perfect expressions of your primal self. I actually, I feel like I'm pretty good at doing impressions, but I find Mass Mickelson to be pretty tough. I can't do it. And the thing is, I should because I'm, my people are from that area of the world, but I, I can't do it. Can't do it. You're Danish? My, uh, no, technically German, but very much... Um, that whole northern european tall get sunburned easily fair yeah. hair type of thing northern european mutt yeah yeah <laughs> well um before we launch into discussing our next batch of episodes just wanted to check in on how you're feeling generally when we left last time you were feeling a little lukewarm on the series uh, has that changed are you Still feeling the same? Do you feel worse? What are you? Uh, what are you thinking of Hannibal now that we are through episode six? Yeah, I wouldn't say necessarily lukewarm, although maybe that's an apt enough description. Um, I am hooked. enjoying it, but uh, I still do find it to be a little. And I don't mean this as a detraction necessarily, but I sometimes find it to be a little bit goofy. Uh, sometimes it t- it tends to go into a bit of like CSI category which i love csi it's not a bad thing but there is that kind of team that i've been enjoying that has um scott thompson from kids in the hall and a couple other characters who kind of do the wise cracking at the crime scene which seems to me a very like tv trope type of deal um and you associate with those uh with those types of shows but i do like a couple things about it i do like how there is an overarching plot uh and overarching character development but also uh usually very episode specific storylines that kind of get brought up and wrapped up more or less yeah um so it's kind of the combination of the long arc and the monster of the week uh which i think is is really the perfect type of storytelling um because you can kind of jump in and catch up on one episode but you're still kind of interested at the larger picture yeah it allows people to watch it episodically but it still rewards the long-term viewer yes you know what show i feel like really uh not invented that but sort of perfected it was well you could point to the x-files but i would actually say uh buffy the vampire slayer 
Ah. I think was the first show to really do that perfectly. Yes, yes, long before Joss Sweden was canceled. <laughs> right. Well, cool. I think we'll talk about some of those things that you brought up in a little bit more detail as we get into the episodes, and why don't we just launch right in? Now, I think we're going to do this a little differently now because we're doing a TV show and we're doing it episode by episode. And let me know how you feel about this suggestion. We'll do kind of a recap, but I'm going to break it up into the A story and the B story. And we'll run through the one and then the other. All right. So instead of going like, point by point by point the way the episode does i'll just run through the whole a story and then we'll run through the whole b story so basically we are flattening the plot arcs and making them parallel instead of intersecting yeah yeah i just confused it more but i think i know what you're getting at we'll see if it works i'm just it's an experiment we'll try it so of the three episodes, uh, episode four, uh, titled Oof, I don't know if you've noticed yet, but every episode is named after a course. A delicious course, yes. Very clever. This one I think we can maybe knock out a little fast, but it's because it's kind of the least of the three episodes for this yeah. installment, so we'll just kind of plow through it. So it starts off, and the first question that I had during the opening was, we've gotten to know Hannibal over these series of episodes, and given everything that we know about him, why did Hannibal Lecter choose to live in Baltimore, of all places? Hmm. It's an interesting question. Now, Baltimore has the Orioles. Um, it's Charm City. It's Charm City. You have John Waters going way back, native son of uh, Baltimore. Um, Edgar Allan Poe died there. Okay, I didn't know that. That's why they call the Baltimore Ravens the Ravens. They're named for the poem. What? I yeah. never knew that. That's yeah, an awesome that cool? piece of trivia. Yeah. I think that's really cool. But beyond all those things, it does seem, you know, um, kind of international man of intrigue, cunning, intelligent, charming, wealthy, great dresser, has the whole world in front of him, the whole world is his oyster, and he says, you know what? Baltimore. Fuck Florence, I'm gonna go to Baltimore. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, huh. yeah. Uh, maybe he was a big fan of The Wire. Yes, I can only hope so. I'm mm. oh, an Omar Hannibal crossover? Oh my god. I I definitely just got an erection, sorry. Well, anyway... We get more of that sweet, sweet patter. Tell me, Will. Do you think that Will's started getting too close to the cases and too close to Abigail in particular? Yes, of course he has. Mm. Yeah, that's what we get in our intro. And speaking of the intro, I wasn't sure where to put it, so I'll put it in this episode because it's kind of uh, a short Short one. Uh, do you like the intro to this show? The sequence? Yeah, I do. I don't know if it's one of my favorites of all time, but it's definitely good. Um, I'm 
generally pro intro. I don't fast forward while I'm binge watching. I think that you need that amount of time to kind of get geared up and ready. And there's a familiar quality to it once you've seen uh, multiple episodes. So I like it. Right on. I like that it's short and sweet. Yeah. Do you have any uh, any favorites? Any longtime favorites from your life? Of intros? All-time best intros? So there is... I mean, you just mentioned The Wire, which had... Um, you know, which redid the theme song by a different artist every, every season, season yeah. and was always fantastic. The aforementioned uh, X-Files. And mentioned X-Files. Uh, I am a huge fan of kind of X-Files, and The Wire had many, and Breaking Bad had amazing cold opens. And you just wait for those were cold opens though i'm just talking cold opens but part of what the cold open is it's punctuated by the theme song Mm, okay like to me like when i was when breaking bad was kind of in its prime and i would look forward to watching it every week i would just look forward to that kind of moment at the end of the scene where the two characters are just staring at each other and it's so wrought with tension and then all of a sudden it's just like boom 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 yeah, and it would be like, oh, we're in it now. Um, a great theme song, e- e- probably better than the TV show, was uh, was Dexter. Just the uh, making breakfast uh, montage was amazing. Um, as far as being stuck in my head, uh, uh, little boxes from Weeds. Uh, uh, that song will never get out of my head. And I stopped watching that show after like season two. It got too much for me. But they also song, started remaking that one eventually what? for each season what doing covers yeah oh, oh, oh yes different covers of it i thought you meant they were remaking the series which is entirely unnecessary game of thrones man yes good good one yeah absolutely all right just a bit of a tangent but uh, let's launch into our a story finally so we get our weekly murder victims it is a nice suburban family that has been killed at their dinner table and they discover that the family had a missing child. And that's the through line that they're going to start focusing on. I want to ask, too, that we dis- eventually discover that uh, the killer of this week is played by Molly Shannon. Uh, what did you think of her in a serious role? I thought it was pretty great. And it's something that, because we'll get into the other episodes later, and then I mentioned Scott Thompson earlier, so I do like that this show seems to be employing actors who are famous for comedy to be in uh, this, you know, not necessarily comedic series. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought Molly Shannon's performance in particular brought elements, I think, of some of the characters that she may have done, or I guess the the character traits are what's below the surface of some of the characters maybe that she played on SNL and other places. Um, a creepy and just intensity. kind of being like a deranged person underneath it. Yeah. Yeah. They do. They, they the show seems to like casting a lot of stage actors too. I noticed. Yes. But um, yeah, I did also like her. I felt a little bad that it, it just seemed like she didn't get quite enough to do. I thought maybe one or two more scenes could have fleshed that character out a little more. Mm hmm. But yeah, I, I thought it was it was interesting. I I do like that observation that uh, her comedy did seem to rely on that kind of like there's something not right about her behind the eyes. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm I mean I know she there are better examples than this, but the 
Mary Catherine Gallagher was just a kind of just a screwed up girl um, with definitely some psychological issues. If you were to look in her background, uh, I would guess. I don't know if they ever flushed out her biography, but um, she had a lot of recurring, I think, characters on SNL that I'm not thinking of that always had like a little bit of just something, as you said, behind the eye. Something's going on there. Something's not right. There's something there's a disturbed memory in that background somewhere. <laughs> yeah. So Will realizes that at first they start thinking that the killer might be the returned child. And then they start making the connection that uh, there are more missing children. And they come across crime scene number two, which is the uh, fucked up Christmas. Yeah. But at crime scene number two, one of the missing children is there. And they discover that um, the theory anyway is that the missing children are coming back and killing their original families and forming kind of an ersatz new family. This kid maybe hesitated and so didn't make the cut. And mm -hmm. so he got cut out of the new family and killed. So the the killers are all about kidnapping kids and making a new family out of it not just accepting the family that you're born with right and that ties kind of into the theme of the whole episode which we'll talk about more in the b story but um i don't know if you noticed we talked about how there's the overarching plots and the the episodic plots but they do seem to you know balance or they, they they it's like poetry they rhyme thematically every every episode a little bit yes this one being family and so yeah so molly shannon's whole thing is that your real family isn't your family because you didn't choose them the family you're born with wasn't chosen you want to make a family that's a real family it's not it's a crazy philosophy but in its own way it has an actual kind of kernel of interesting thought behind it yes uh well yes and no and i've definitely heard that concept of chosen family i mean not not in so far as you're going out and murdering and kidnapping people um but there is definitely an idea that i've heard from folks who maybe did not get along the best with their family or had very serious issues that they felt they needed to get away from and this concept of chosen family which obviously i mean family is the people that are closest to you that you care about and there's all different shapes that that can take but there is something to family as far as, you know, just the very fact that they are people that you have no choice over, that you haven't chosen, that you maybe wouldn't choose, yet they're still family. And I think that is in an important thing as well, because yeah. that's how we uh, confront types of people, ideas, behaviors, etc., cetera, uh, that we wouldn't choose to have be part of our lives, but that we feel that we have no choice but to have them be part of our lives. And I think that makes us stronger. Now, that being said, I'm, you, you know, you fortunate enough anyway. to not have murderers or stuff like that in my family. So there's, <laughs> I haven't had to make, make any like real tough decisions, but, uh, but I do have people who I disagree with politically, who I think, I think that's even, or maybe close to as bad. <laughs> yeah. At least if you ask the internet, it is. Exactly. You've been on Twitter lately. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, I don't want to make any assumptions, but I'm assuming that you love them anyway. Of course, most yeah. days. 
And so that's, you know, that's kind of the great thing about the OG concept of family is that, you know, so many different things could be standing in the way of what would even make you friends in any other context. And yet they're your family. Yes. There's some bonds that just go beyond anything else. Anyway, Beverly visits Will in his classroom and Will is completely zonked out. He's like zoned out completely while looking at his computer. He totally misses what she's talking about, which is interesting. I don't know if you clocked that or not. Um, Yeah. How do we, how do we like Beverly, by the way? You know, you were talking about the little CSI crew. She stands out from them, I think. Do you like her? I like her well enough, yeah. She seems like an all right person. All right, that's it. I, I guess I don't have anything interesting really to say about her, so. All right, okay. Sorry. <laughs> Just chicken. Well, you know, she's she hasn't had much time to distinguish herself yet, but. Right. She'll grow. And she also, she stands out more than the other two, so far, anyway. Yeah, that's definitely true. And uh, definitely you get the idea that there's something more behind that character. And um, I'm not surprised to learn that that character grows and gets more kind of developed as it goes along. So she brings up that uh, maybe the oldest there's an oldest missing kid. And at first they start thinking maybe it's a Peter Pan type deal. But Mm -hmm. our friend Alana, Alana Bloom makes the connection to there maybe being a mother type figure who is running this whole scheme. But have they made this connection in time to put all the pieces together? And there's a race against the clock to try and catch the uh, serial killer family before they kill OG family number three. And we get this shot of killer family going to the original family's house, you know, because they come back with the missing kid a year later so that the missing kid can kill the family. And I was just like, just imagine the nightmare that your kid has been missing for a year. And he comes home and you're like, oh, my God, Timmy, Timmy, you're back. He's he's back after a year of being gone. And that and then following that joy is that it turns into a home invasion and a giant whole family execution. Oh, man. It's tough. Yeah. How fucked up is that? But um, they do make it in time. They managed to stop what's going on, and they capture everyone. Did you notice, though, that uh, Jack Crawford is really not comforting to the kid after they arrest him? I think so, yeah. I don't remember what specifically he says, but yeah, he's just he's kind of flippant. He's really cold. The kid's <laughs> like, I wasn't going to do it, you know? And he's like, yeah, well, I don't really believe you, and you're going <laughs> to have to talk to a lot of lawyers before anyone else is ever going to believe you. That's right, yeah. Can I see my mom? Maybe someday. <laughs> like, I know, not very like lovingly paternal in that moment. Cold motherfucker. All right, so that's the end of the A story. Um, any further comments on that? No, I mean, I thought it was a nice little one. Yeah, yeah. So our B story. Number one, Hannibal uh, comes over to Will's house 
and uh, you notice he ingratiates himself with Will's dogs very quickly. How? Human sausage. Yeah, or at least with food, naturally. That's Hannibal's secret, secret weapon always. We get a check-in with Abigail. She is not doing super well in the psychiatric clinic where she's hanging out. Hannibal suggests that, you know, maybe uh, maybe he could step in as her caretaker, you know? Brilliant idea. Yeah. And then we get a little interlude where Will and Hannibal discuss their mother's classic psychiatric shit. Tell yes. me about your mother, Will. <laughs> the interaction between Hannibal and Will is very good. And I think that... Hannibal is just such a good foil for Will um, because he sees kind of through, you know, there's I think there's a tendency of other characters on the show to treat Will like a kind of special, brilliant snowflake that can't be challenged and, you know, needs to be uh, left alone to do his brilliant thing. And Hannibal is just like, tell me about your mother. Well, this is good. I'm glad that you are responding to that because the Will Hannibal relationship really is the beating heart of this show. Sure. So if you're if you're responding to that, then I think things are on the right course. But also, um, Hannibal does also think that Will is special. He just, you know, his special interest in Will is taking a slightly different form, you know? That's true. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, the, this whole, all of the B stories, again, tie in thematically to our serial killer, uh, where, you know, Abigail is dealing with the loss of her family, and Will and Hannibal are discussing their moms and everything like that. We also get a real quick confirmation, even though we already knew, but um, we now know for sure that Hannibal has been feeding Jack people during their dinners because we get a very startling flash to an attack on someone while they're having it when uh Hannibal tells him that they're having rabbit. Yeah. Yeah. But then we should get have been to faster or something, right? Yeah, yeah, you should have hopped faster. <laughs> but then we get to like the real interesting part of the B story, which is Hannibal decides to take Abigail out of the psych clinic for some special treatment that only he can provide, which is he gives her mushroom tea mm-hmm. to help her get over her lingering issues. Oh, yeah. yeah. Will, would you let Hannibal be your shroom guide? Wow, that is a loaded question. I mean, of course, she does not have the full knowledge of Hannibal that we have. No. Um, but uh, either way, I think only if if Hannibal, let's say, like, you know, I don't know that He's a cannibal Um, and he's just like a guy and he's and I know him just to be this like kind of intimidating, charming, uh, intelligent guy who owns a lot of books and is a gourmet chef. And he asks me to come over and just do shrooms, just the two of us together. Uh, He's not Uh, even doing it. It's just you. Yeah, (laughs) I don't know, man. I, I, I mean. I'm more like go to nature, take a walk out in the woods, that type of thing. But, I mean, you know, he seems like he's being very responsible about it. He's like, 
we're only going to do this under these very controlled circumstances. I am going to supervise you. You know, I'm a psychiatrist. Right. I mean, that to me makes it kind of worse. You know, oh, uh, you know, that paranoid like you're super. I'm being supervised. Ah, <laughs> well, but uh, he does kind of do a good job when she starts to freak out. He gives her I talked about this on a recent podcast, uh, the Midsommar podcast, where um, the Merry Pranksters who were kind of the original uh, proselytizers for acid tripping. Yeah. Had this whole technique for when you started to freak out on LSD bad trips, which was to give the person suffering something that they called total attention, which was to focus in on them and, you know, kind of completely focus on them and give them what they needed in the moment. And Hannibal really does that to her. She starts to freak out a little bit. And he gets right up to her and focuses on her and says, you know, he's like, you're going to be okay. Just feel it, ride it, get through it. And then you're going to come through the other side and, you know, you're going to be fine. You're here with me. You know, he does a good job of kind of calming her down. Mm -hmm. And then he feeds her dinner. Yes. And then he feeds her human flesh. Oh, we don't know that that dinner is human. I just assume every dinner is human flesh. Should I okay. not? Yeah. Well, they don't know, though. Uh, he has a fun line here, though, too, where he talks about taste is not only biochemical, it is also psychological. Yes. They invite Alana over for dinner, too. Alana is pissed about this. Uh, she does, And she doesn't even know about the mushroom tea. She's fucking pissed about him taking Abigail out of the psych clinic. Right. I mean, I don't know a ton about psychology um, as far as on a professional level, what is considered uh, normal behavior, what's considered kind of outside the box thinking and what's considered um, unethical. <laughs> but I would assume that uh, bringing a young woman to your house alone, feeding her dinner and drugging her is not considered the most traditionally ethical behavior in uh, the psychological community. It sounds unorthodox to me. Very unorthodox, which Hannibal claims to be. Yep. Alana, from a professional point of view, it's she's her patient, at the very least, that he's interfering with. She finds it shockingly rude, which, you know, cuts Hannibal to the core. But they have dinner anyway. Hannibal mentions that... Uh, he gave her half a va uh, half a Valium, so she may be a little hazy. Right, half a Valium will do that to you. Yeah, half a Valium will make her act like she was acting at that fucking dinner. But uh, on the plus side, it does seem like Hannibal's technique worked because she ends the episode very happy. She does, yeah. So hey, you know, strange. It's all about results, right? Exactly. So all right. On to episode five, Coquille. Will opens the episode sleepwalking. And also that stag is still bothering him. Yes, creeping up behind. Have you ever sleepwalked, Will? Have I? This is, uh, <laughs> or are we just quoting the episode? <laughs> uh, have you uh, ever sleepwalked? Yes. Yeah, it's, I have as well. It's terrifying, isn't it? Yes. Yes, I haven't uh I haven't 
had any real extreme examples. Um, but I have, I do remember like waking up in the hallway outside of my bathroom one time. This was years ago. I also remember, um, actually one time kind of coming to as I was urinating in a clothes hamper. Hmm. I, in my sleep thought I had gone to the bathroom and was peeing in the toilet and I woke up and I was in my bedroom still and I was peeing in my like clothes basket. Yeah, that's well, that's no fun. I've had um <laughs> bad sleepwalking experiences too. Um I I have insomnia uh bad insomnia, so I can also relate to that from Will's uh pr- other problems, but um yeah. I was prescribed Ambien, which... Ooh, how's that? Well, it was fantastic for helping me sleep, but I had to stop taking it because it can cause sleepwalking yeah. as a side effect. And um, it can be very distressing. You know, I basically occasionally would, like, wake up... Like, you were, like, some place where, like, I woke up and, like, how did I get there? And occasionally, like, people were talking to me. That's yeah, that I've never had that happen. I don't think that I'm aware of. Right. You know, so yeah. Not not fun. So yeah, Will winds up pretty far from home in that instance. Um, but don't worry, he's got a friend in Hannibal. Office hours are for patients. My kitchen is always open to friends. Seriously, I don't care what he is making his stuff with that coffee looked really nice. It looked delicious. Oh, is there humans in the coffee too? Like ground up bones or something? I didn't even think Who of that. Who the hell knows? <laughs> so our A story this week. Oh, the crime scene is such a doozy. It's the angel wings crime scene. Oh man. Yeah. The, the killer this week is the angel maker. Uh, yeah. This is, if you remember the movie well enough, a reference back to Silence of the Lambs. I actually don't remember that. Was that a motif used in that movie? I don't remember that. I mean, I do remember, obviously, the butterfly imagery. Um, one When Hannibal Lecter escapes from his imprisonment, one of the security guards that he kills, he kills in a manner like this. And mm. so we can take it to be that he killed him sort of in reference back to this crime. Okay. Uh, in particular, crime scene number two, uh, when we get to it, uh, we is sort of a recreation of the Silence of the Lambs crime scene. So we can actually sort of feel like it's the other way that Hannibal was referencing back to this mm-hmm. when he escaped. Because, you know, he's a bit of an artist. He was doing a cover, so to speak. Yes. It is also, I believe, the first time on this show that we get reference to the Chesapeake Ripper. Hmm. Who seems to be a very high-level serial killer operating in and around the Baltimore area. Now, Will starts out a little bit tired, but then he gets into that crime scene and... Okay, I'm awake. Yes. Dude, How? I mean, we've had some crime scenes so far, but I always remember this one. What did you think? It's a very good one. I mean, not good in that horrific kind of way, but it is, for me, you know, we see a lot of kind of fictional violence, at least I do, because that's the media I choose to consume, but I think generally people do. 
And some of it, and I think we've talked about this in previous episodes of the show, like things that get to you and things that don't. And, you know, sometimes it's just kind of like uh, whatever. I'm having some laughs. I'm watching a TV show and I'm not really coming to like real terms with like how fucked up that is for me just being killed in that way where you're having your skin like ripped from your body is such a horrific thing to think about that it was just like uh like like shivers like like neck shivery yeah well you know you've mentioned csi already and there's such a glut of these murder investigation shows on TV that it's basically hard to make this stuff memorable. It's hard to stand out. And so the way this show does it is by making it one, so incredibly gruesome, but two, also adding a level of artisticness. Yeah. 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 And I think it is you because with all the CSIs and CISVUSs, out there it's all these like horrific gory rape murders that are happening constantly and they're just kind of done for like you know fodder for quips or for you know melodramatic uh kind of moments but it's just a crude brutality yes yeah this is elegant (laughs) it's yes an artiste of course Mm, yeah Fittingly. Well, so Will takes the extraordinary step of lying down in that bed. The killer slept in that bed. Could you sleep in that fucking bed? No, I could not. Jesus Christ. Yeah, insane. So what the killer is doing is he makes angels to pray over him in his sleep because he's afraid that he will die in his sleep of cancer. Again, bringing us to the theme of the episode, uh, which we'll get to in our B story. Crime scene number two, he kills a security guard, and we find out that the angel maker also cut his own fucking balls off. (sighs) You caught that that happened? Yeah, self auto castration. Do they do they give it a word? I, yeah, they, they. I should have written it down, but they did have. Uh, yeah, a, I forget, a it was something that I was like, "Oh, yes, that's the fancy word for that." Yeah, Will at this crime scene starts getting a little insubordinate with Jack as well, and I suppose uh, I should kind of loop in here that uh, in the B story, this is a result of Hannibal. It's Hannibal's doing. He's kind of beginning to work a little bit of his manipulative psychological magic on Will to drive a wedge between them. And it's in this scene that you kind of see it starting to pay off a little bit. But it's also because of this uh, kind of blow up between them that Will actually starts to worry that there might genuinely be something wrong with him. He, He... I think he actually, it's Beverly, right? He asks if it seems like there's something off about himself. Yeah. Yeah. And then a little bit later, he actually wakes up standing on his own roof. Which, I mean, we talked about sleepwalking. That has not happened to me. Well, talk about being afraid to go to sleep. 
right? Right. That's that's like some Berbiglia shit. Yeah, right. It, it is. Yeah. And also, I would say a, a very creepy image, you know, like you don't even yeah. need gore to make an image scary and creepy. Just show a man waking up standing on his own roof. And that that creeped me out. Yeah. So it was a effective uh, visual filmmaking with not using very much. So hats off to the, the Hannibal crew. They ultimately find the angel maker. And I'm starting to realize that maybe I should have looped that B story in a little bit more in talking about this episode. Oh, well. Um, actually, uh, why don't I loop it in now before we yep. get to the climax? All right. So in the B story, Mrs. Jack finally comes to dinner with Hannibal. Her name is Bella, and she is played by Gina Torres who at the time, anyway, they're divorced now, but was married to Lawrence Fishburne. Oh, really? Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Do you uh, do you know Gina Torres' other work? Do you like her? You know, I feel like I probably should know her since you're mentioning her in that context. But no, I, she's not really ringing any bells if I, uh, as I watched her. Oh, well, I mean, you know, uh, she pops up around, but I think as far as being like a nerd icon, her big thing was being on... Another Joss Whedon uh, property by the name of Firefly. Oh, she's on Firefly. Okay. Yes. Yes. Bella skips the foie gras because it is too cruel to eat. Do you eat foie gras? I never have. Um, I do know how it's made. And that's kind of one of the things where I wish I would have had the opportunity to taste it before learning how it's made because I don't think I would now just, um, you know, just being aware of it. I mean, that being said, uh, we live in a country where if you consume meat on any kind of regular level, you are contributing to just horrific, horrific things. And, um, you know, I eat meat daily. So really like it's, it's, you're kind of picking and choosing your outrage. Yeah. But foie gras is d uniquely terrible it's like veal if you uh yes. for those in the audience who don't know what it is just google it it's um it is a terrible thing to eat hannibal rather amusingly mentions that he uses an ethical butcher but i just don't see how you can ethically eat that there's no ethical way of uh force feeding a duck until its liver explodes which i believe is what how you make foie gras yeah but we do get a critical thing in the scene, which is that Hannibal mentions and displays how he has this superhumanly powerful sense of smell. Mm -hmm. He says in a previous point in his life, he even smelled the fact that someone he knew had stomach cancer. Yeah, I think a teacher of his. Which, is that possible? Can you smell cancer? I haven't looked, I didn't look this up, but I was like, that seems iffy to me. Like, and you know, it's actually, so. Now that you mention it, I think, um, well, I do know that dogs are able to smell certain types of illnesses. I don't know if cancer is one of them. See, that's exactly what I was going to bring up. Like, why don't they hire dogs at hospitals for like cancer screenings to just kind of give you a once a good sniff over and be like, ah, there's something not right in this area here. Because I don't think you could get I don't think it's scientifically reliable to the point where you could get an insurance company to, you know, have Patsy, the golden retriever, be 
the test. Damn Obamacare. Thanks, Obamacare. I know. But he says this rather pointedly, which leads to Bella coming over later and admitting to him that she is indeed dying of cancer. Yeah. It's a really nice scene from her, though, which is another reason why I brought her up, just because uh, she acts a really nice scene talking to Hannibal about her inevitable death. It is. It's it's a very well-acted scene on both ends, yeah. Yeah, yeah, both of them are quite good in that scene, frankly. And, you know, Hannibal might be a monster, but he's he's very strategic and specific about when he's a monster. He's not always a monster. Right, that's what makes him such a good monster, because he understands how to fake being a good person. Yeah. Like the real good psychopaths have learned to do. Right. Yeah, well put. Then, you know, as I probably should have mentioned earlier, he works a little bit of mojo on Will. Will even recognizes it, asking him, you know, are you trying to alienate me from Jack Crawford? Which uh, is true. Yeah. In a later scene, Will and Hannibal talk again. Will takes a moment to admire Hannibal's stag sculpture, and Hannibal sniffs Will. Will's Will's like, did you just smell me? (laughs) So we're led to wonder, you know, he does this while they're discussing Will's gradually accumulating symptoms. Is there something wrong with Will? We also get another reference to the canon. This episode starts to really ramp that up. Hannibal mentions that Will wears a bad aftershave, something with a ship on the bottle. That is uh, from Red Dragon, both the book and the movie. Oh, really? You remember that? Yeah. Another Um, little Easter egg. I don't remember that. So the character um, uses a, I mean, old ship, I just think of Old Spice, but I don't know. I don't think they mean that specifically, but it's, uh, you know, in in the book, he's getting it from his... uh, stepdaughter huh okay stepson or you know he's got a he's got a new relationship he keeps getting it as a gift but anyway back to the angel maker so they're talking about the angel maker to his estranged wife and the wife describes how the man after his cancer diagnosis began pulling away because of it and jack who up until this point did not know that his wife had cancer and has been kind of dealing with some marital problems because of it, because of her seemingly unreasonable coldness up until this point, suddenly gets a clue and puts two and two together in this scene. Uh, And at that moment, I just, I put as my note uh, that the episode is very elegantly structured, I think. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I just, you know, it it might be a little bit on the nose, but uh, I just I I liked that scene of Lawrence Fishburne's acting when he suddenly makes the discovery and can't even finish the interview. You know, he just kind of like sits when he realizes what's been going on. Yeah. Yeah. It was a very nice kind of dramatic realization of what's going on without making it explicit although yeah maybe a little on the nose but i mean that's necessary to for storytelling yeah 
And because, you know, no, nobody says anything. It's all visual. It's just right. on his face. Right. And of course, you've got, you know, Lawrence Fishburne, one of the all time greats there. So, um, yeah. you know, he can just do so much with a moment like that. Right. So they discover Angel Maker has a farm. They head on out there and it's too late. He has Angel made himself. Will admits that all this shit is starting to take a toll on him. And Jack pulls that kind of BS, you can quit whenever you want to shit. I thought that was kind of a dick move, frankly. Right. Was the, is the character a little inconsistent? I sort of find that because in some ways, you know, archetypally, Jack is kind of the angry police chief who's all, you know, get in my office, meh. But he also is kind of this gentle, almost kind of paternal character towards Will as well, and kind of understanding to him almost to a fault uh, as far as, you know, when people comment that he's always kind of handling him with kid gloves or something like that. And then I feel like there's sometimes there are sort of shifts between those two points that are just kind of come up uh, almost like randomly or just in whatever way serves the forward momentum of a scene what i think it is is that um and we might see a little bit of this in the next episode in fact uh jack is very manipulative when trying to get what he wants and so you know he is this tough cop fbi man and he doesn't take a lot of shit from his subordinates but in will's case he really needs this guy and his help and so he gives him the treatment that he thinks will needs so yeah. that he can get what he needs from will and so that also you know explains the behavior that he shows in this scene where he's kind of like i'm not your father will i can't tell you to keep pushing if you don't think you can do it but don't you think that if you go back to your classroom and there's not another death that you could have stopped that won't make it feel worse to be there you know which is such a manipulative dick thing to say but at the same time when will has that insubordinate moment earlier where he acts out in front of other fbi people right that's when jack actually barks at him you know it's like I, I did not hear you just say that you know he has to actually lay a bit of a smackdown on him to preserve his authority yeah there are limits um so you know i think it and, and you know he does like will too so i think there is a consistency there if you imagine it as just jack will do what it takes to get what he needs from people yeah if that makes I can sense see that. Yeah. We get one last little jump scare when it's like, oh, fuck, he's alive. Right. Ooh. Did that freak you out? Yes, because it's just the whole thing I find so, like, gross and, and horrific. And and how do you and doing that to yourself, like the the sickness it must take to be able to. And I understand it's fake, but to be able to perform such a horrific maneuver on yourself is just insane. And the fact that you could, that you'd still be alive for that amount of time. Oh, I know. Yeah. Damn, that shit was scary, yo. Yes. Uh, 
Well, okay. There is a final scene where Jack and Bella finally have it out. Uh, it's well acted, but I don't think there's too much else to say about it. And at the end, um, Will goes to Jack and comforts him in his uh, down moment, showing that the alienation Hannibal has been aiming towards has not worked completely, at least mm-hmm. not yet. Episode six, the aptly titled Entree. Eddie Izzard is in a very familiar looking hospital setting. Yeah. It is the Baltimore State Hospital for the Criminally Insane. He fakes a health emergency and then he makes hospital art out of a nurse. Hospital art. Yeah. Yeah, a bit more uh, risque than what you normally see hanging up in hospitals, which are like watercolors of tugboats or something. You got to take risks if you want to stand out. That's right. Avant-garde. How avant-garde. What do we think of Eddie Izzard on this show? All right. So Eddie Izzard in general, I mean, good actor. He gave a good performance. I didn't love the character for reasons that we'll get into as we go throughout the episode. Um, It is another instance that we mentioned before of having someone who's famous uh, comedically portray a uh, more dramatic role, although there was definitely a comedic element to this role, um, both in that he was, you know, somewhat witty or, you know, quippy, uh, but also I think on, uh, a more meta level in that it was maybe commenting somewhat on the Hannibal Lecter trope, which has become, it's almost like, it was almost like a, um, I don't know if you watch Curb Your Enthusiasm at all. No. Okay. There's a scene in Curb Your Enthusiasm where it's built around a Seinfeld reunion and there is and you have all the actors from Seinfeld there and Jason Alexander who plays George you know for whatever reason gets mad and storms off the set so Larry David takes on for one scene plays the role of George on Seinfeld so you have you know quote on you have Larry David playing quote unquote Larry David the Larry David character playing George playing Jason Alexander playing George Costanza based on Larry David. It's this whole kind of circular thing, which is just kind of one of my favorite bits of just like extreme meta humor. This, I think, was sort of a similar commentary because you have on the show Hannibal, you have Eddie Izzard playing a character that's based on Hannibal, that's aping Hannibal, but also is supposed to be before Hannibal um, because it takes place before Silence of the Lambs, but it's clearly commenting on this entire sort of cultural character uh kind of trope that that was introduced to us by the Hannibal Lecter character in primarily I would say Silence of the Lambs of co- but of course you know Manhunter and and the books before that does that make any sense or did I just ramble for a while no it makes perfect sense I I would say during the episode he kind of comes across like he's doing a bad Anthony Hopkins impression yeah but that is because his character is essentially plagiarizing the Chesapeake Ripper. He yes. is doing a bad 
Hannibal impression. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So he basically he acted perfectly by acting superficially kind of hamily and badly. Yeah. Uh, so it was it was deliberate. I think that early in the episode before I, you know, it was all kind of laid out there and I appreciated, oh, they were doing this all kind of tongue in cheek and it was supposed to be kind of this way and they were commenting on itself and it was all deliberate. Um it did kind of annoy me in the beginning part where I was just like, they're just ripping off Hannibal Lecter to but, Han- on Hannibal. But he's like, ripping off. He is ripping off Hannibal Lecter. Exactly. So it's the po- it's the whole point. I don't yeah. know. It's <laughs> no, no, it's well observed. <laughs> it's what level it's what level do you want to appreciate it on? And if you appreciate it on the wrong level, then I find it annoying. But if you appreciate it on the right level, it's it's clever and well done. Stay back, children. You can't possibly enjoy this on as many levels as I do. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So in our A story, Freddie Lowndes is back at it. She thinks that Dr. Abel Gideon, our Eddie Izzard character, has been the Chesapeake Ripper the entire time that he's been locked up. And the returning Dr. Chilton thinks so, too. Mm Mm-hmm. The head of the Baltimore criminally insane locked up atorium. Raul Esparza, another new stage, mostly funny song and dance man coming into this thing. Although now he's mostly known for being on SVU, interestingly R- enough. But right. Um, and this was before, I believe, his stint on SVU, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. And uh, I mean, I'm aware of him being very big in the New York theater scene, being that I'm not a millionaire who lives in Manhattan. I've never I've not seen any of that up close and personal. I'm just kind of know of that. So, yeah, yeah I'm reputation. mostly familiar with <laughs> from actually watching him. I'm most familiar with uh, with SVU. Right. Um, but I mean, he's a, he's just a tremendous actor and he's a similar character, but uh, a bit a bit more kind of uh, shit eating in this in this. Right. He's always yeah. kind of got the smirk after he delivers a line. Mm-hmm. Um, he's still a, he's very cynical. oily. Yeah. So I want to take this opportunity to ask you, because this is where it happens again. How are you feeling now about Will's reenactment thing? He uses his talent to do the crime over again has that been working any better for you uh you weren't loving it earlier in the series does it work better for you now so my my overall take on it hasn't changed i don't i wouldn't say that i'm necessarily not loving it as so much as it is just i find it a little bit goofy i it takes it makes me appreciate the show on a different level than I otherwise would. It's a, it's, it's a bit farcical because it's, it's fake. You can't, that doesn't happen. You don't, you know, and I, and I expounded on a little bit beforehand, so I won't go through the whole thing again, but it's just, uh, you know, you can't just like go into a crime scene and, and just kind of like put your mind in the killer and visualize everything that happened and like know the psychological profile of them based on surroundings and it just it doesn't no i don't i don't buy it and every time it happens i find it to be a bit silly but it's a silly convention necessary for the show i mean it's you know there are a lot of silly conventions and shows that i love it's like it's 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 silly to have a character 
uh, Rod Serling, who just happens to be everywhere and is able to freeze time and walks out at dramatic moments and gives a soliloquy. I mean, that's a silly convention, too. So it's like you have to accept some silly conventions for, you know, for a, a, a show to work. But, yeah, I still find it goofy. Okay. Okay. It is pointed out that it has been about two years since the Chesapeake Ripper has last killed. And it was two years since Dr. Gideon was caught. So the question is, is he the guy? Our B story this time ties in a little bit tighter into the main story. So we'll loop it in here. And the B story is a series of flashbacks to Jack Crawford bringing in an FBI trainee named Miriam Lass to investigate the Chesapeake Ripper two years before our present story. Mm-hmm. She is very Clarice Starling-ish. Not just that she's an FBI trainee sent after, they don't know it's Hannibal yet, but sent after Hannibal Lecter, uh, but she's similar to Clarice. She's a young, small woman who's very smart and plucky, You also wonder if, like Clarice and like Will, if this is another person maybe for Jack to recklessly use up for his own purposes yeah, and not take good care of. You know, that's been kind of a running thing where, you know, like Alana doesn't like the way he's just using Will to his own ends, not necessarily to Will's best benefit. And obviously something has happened to Miriam since she's missing. Jack assumes that the Ripper killed her. But in the flashback anyway, she's very good. They examine a previous crime scene, which Dr. Gideon has now recreated, despite it not being public. She noticed that the Ripper would somehow not necessarily be... They They suspect maybe he would be white, but she says... Not white, or maybe he would be white, but exotic somehow. Mm. That's the phrase she uses, exotic somehow. Maybe foreign? Mm. Mm. Maybe a psychiatrist of some kind? Maybe uh, looks really cool in a nice suit? Spitball in here, you know. Really good chef? Mm. Um. In our A story, we start interviewing Gideon, and it's it's very ersatz Silence of the Lambs, these yeah. interviews with him. I mean, it hits really hard how much it replicates that film. Yes. Yeah. But they're not convinced. They, they all debate whether or not he's the guy, but Will certainly isn't sold. He says, I see the Ripper, but I don't feel him. There's the fact that... Um, right. The, the crime scene that he recreated was never made public, but to Will, it feels like plagiarism. You know, that way you can look at a piece of art and feel like it's just someone aping the real thing. Do you ever get that in another piece yes. of art? Well, good artists copy, great artists steal, I think is the... That is the term, uh, but it Picasso seems like he's saying, saying Gideon but... isn't a great artist. Mm, yeah, that's right. You know, every it's the way everyone tries to, you know copy Spielberg, but they never seem to get it quite right. 
uh, okay, if we're going to subtweet J.J. Abrams on this show, that's fine. It doesn't have to be J.J. You could say M. Night Shyamalan. You could say Michael Bay. <laughs> yeah. Also, yeah. Anyway. Um, the other thing, though, that Will points out is that if this is plagiarism of the Chesapeake Ripper, the Ripper is going to want everybody to know that it's plagiarism of the Ripper. And so Jack gets yeah. a phone call, and it's from Miriam Lass. How can this be? They decide to try and lure the Chesapeake Ripper out. But how can they do this? They do it by trying to piss him off by working with Freddie Lowndes and confirming to her that Dr. Gideon is the Chesapeake Ripper. Right. Good idea. Yeah. And to be fair, uh, we see a scene of Hannibal reading the article, and it seems like the plan worked. Yeah. yeah. I mean, have we ever actually seen Hannibal look so furious before? No, he's a very composed character. It's all like deep below the surface. So yeah, it clearly got to him. He's still composed. He's oh sure, he's still composed, but it, it got to him. But it just you feel it radiating off of yes. him. Yes. Oh, he's so mad. Anyway. Gideon, meanwhile, though, he takes credit for Miriam's death, which is interesting because I'm not sure he would have a way of knowing about that. I don't mm. know. But in that exact moment when they're talking about it, Jack gets another call. And this one is from home, no less. And it's again from Miriam. They rush back. Miriam's fingerprints and hair are there. Yep. So it's like, what the fuck is going on? And in the flashbacks now here, we see that this comes back to what I was talking about when we were discussing the last episode. You see the scene where... They discuss whether or not he's going to send her to go look for info on the Ripper and how he sends her off to do it. There, He does it manipulatively. Manipulatively? Manipulatively. He he gives her the idea to go, go off and run and do this incredibly dangerous thing on her own. And so, of course, he feels responsible now. But it's because she is either missing or dead and it's his fault. And this is something he could wind up being responsible for with Will too, if he's not careful. Yeah. Alana doesn't think Gideon's the guy either. She thinks that the idea was suggested to him somehow. And so at a very nice dinner at Hannibal's house, she and Hannibal kind of gang up on Chilton trying to figure out if Chilton psychologically influenced Gideon somehow to claim that he was the Ripper. A couple of things I noticed from this part. Number one, uh, Chilton pours his wine really sloppy. <laughs> now that you mention it, I did take note of that at the time. Yeah, right? It's very sloppily poured. Just sort of like, he's such a Philistine. <laughs> And um, we also get, uh, yet again, another Easter egg. We get the old friend for dinner line. Yes, yes. It's a little early, 
but you know that's fine right but finally jack gets call number three again it's from miriam this call leads them to the observatory and what is inside the observatory it is miriam's severed arm Mm. and how's that for imagery by the way yeah it's holding a cell phone and there's a note next to it that says what do you see yeah clearly the ripper wanted to send a message and i would have to think that the message has been received i mean that is got an exclamation point on it right we get a final flashback to Miriam meeting Hannibal and asking him a few questions. She asks a few questions too many and then also notices a drawing that he has that's incriminating, but it is too late and the Chesapeake Ripper is finally revealed. What did you think of this? Because this is our first scene where we actually see Hannibal as the Ripper in action. Right. And it was it was more of a confirmation, right? Because we were kind of suspecting that the whole time, but it was just made it was I mean, just confirmed. Yeah, we knew. Scene. Yeah. But it's just it was the first ever scene with the mask off. Right. Right. The first time we actually see him, albeit in a flashback, but actually commit of an act of violence. Right. So I mean it was cool, right? Was that not the right thing to think? No. It's it was startlingly brutal too, I think. Yeah, but also you know surgical, poised, all still within kind of Hannibal's mo. Definitely. And then, you know, in Hannibal's unique way to twist that final knife, he sits with Jack and is the one comforting him about Miriam's loss. Yeah. Isn't that twisted? Yes, it is. So that's the end of episode six. And that brings us to the end of the episodes that we are covering today. So, Will, what do you think? How are you feeling? I mean, great. It's, uh, you know, feel, feeling great. As I said in the beginning, a little hungry. Um, <laughs> but actually, you know what? It's uh, We've talked about this before, but it always kind of goes back and forth to me where at some points I'm like, man, that looks so delicious because they just go over the top and, and obviously, you know, fetishize uh, visually the culinary aspect of, of the cannibalism and just make it look like so scrumptious. And then sometimes you're just like, uh, human flesh. And it just kind of goes, uh, it always goes back and forth where like, and one second I'm thinking, you know, I would I would try that. That looks good. And then it's and then and then a minute later I'm just like, Ugh. I would even say that during this batch of episodes, the cannibalism angle takes a bit of a back seat. We still see some very gorgeously plated food yeah. at Hannibal's residence. But um, you know, now that the Ripper is starting to come more fully into view, we're gonna see some more of his activity kind of fully uh, portrayed. Oh, I bet. And one thing that I think has been that the series has clearly been building up to is, you know, more of that type of thing. Hannibal taking a more kind of active, you know, some some things coming to a head, obviously. And 
kind of we know where this ends up ultimately, or at least you know the broad strokes of it. So um, I, I definitely feel that build up happening, and you know some things being set up for the kind of second half of the season. Uh, not that I know exactly or even have any real predictions of where it's going, other than you know the broad strokes of it. But uh, yeah, I mean, I do feel like you know there's some things that are simmering that are going to come to the surface. What do you think's going on with Will? I mean, he's just you know he's going to have he's going to continue to have kind of have a slow nervous breakdown, um, but then he's going to uh, use that to his advantage to uh, to kind of do something heroic at some point. Okay, all right. Any other predictions before we log off for the day? So there's this weird thing, and this could just be a complete dead end, but we mentioned this in, in, in like the, it was like the second episode, something like that, and there's the character of Freddy, and there's this t- moment where she's sitting there with Hannibal, and Hannibal's like, oh, you've been very rude. And then it just kind of like cuts away. And it's like, well... What happened there? <laughs> and 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 I mean, I think it's going to be re- revealed at some point that uh, there was something, you know, that Freddie uh, maybe in that moment, whatever happened, like uh, she knows more at this point than she's kind of letting on. She had to cut some kind of deal with him. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. It could could have been could have been nothing. But um, if I'm just going to have kind of an out-of-the-blue sort of prediction or inkling, I think there's more to that exchange than we currently know about. Right on. Right on. All right. Well, that should do it for the second course in our Hannibal feast that we've been embarking on. Soup to nuts. Yeah. So, Will, thanks for joining, and we'll have you come back uh after the next batch of episodes is done terrific anyone out there want to talk to us about hannibal some more reach out via email at better late than never pod at gmail.com or hit us up on twitter at better late underscore pod like subscribe leave five star reviews or do all that stuff but otherwise just keep on listening keep on downloading and we will catch you next time Bye.